Bibles to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. And uh, we will encounter Jesus right before he is about to embark on the most agonizing and harrowing journey of his life. It is a, a place where, in some ways, the balance between uh, heaven and hell is real, and in some ways in which the war for our very destiny is at stake. This is a prayer that Jesus utters here in John 17 on the night before he is to be crucified, but it is not the prayer that maybe you first think of when you think about what happens uh, a prayer on this night. Because this is happening before Jesus makes it to the Garden of Gethsemane. The beginning of chapter 18 of John's Gospel says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. So, in other words, Jesus spends that time with John 13 through 16, uh, speaking to his disciples, which we've spent the last few weeks looking at. And then he prays to his father here in John 17. And then after that, he enters into the garden of Gethsemane. And you might know what happens there. See, John doesn't tell us that, but the other gospels fill in the account of what's happening. After this time of prayer, Jesus heads into the garden and he tells his disciples, be praying. And he takes his three closest friends in the world, Peter, James, and John, and he brings them a little bit further into the garden and he tells them, be praying. And then Jesus himself goes even a little bit further and he, uh, he, he really falls on the ground in anguish and pleads with his father such that he is in such agony and anguish that Luke, a medical doctor, tells us that he was sweating like great drops of blood falling to the ground, such that an angel had to be sent to strengthen him. This is no ordinary anguish. And so he prays to his father, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The cup he speaks of is the cup of the wrath of God, that sinners like you and me deserve. Now, uh, Jesus, the son of God, was on the same page as his father about what was about to happen. But Jesus, in his human nature, was praying, basically, uh, if there's another way, let's do it that way. But Father, I trust you. It is well with my soul. We just sang that. That's a song that can be uttered from the, the cry of an anguished heart. And Jesus here in the garden is in deep agony and anguish, knowing what was about to happen. And as he prays that, there is a sense in which, uh, really, your destiny and my destiny hinges on what he's going to do. See, his whole life, Jesus' temptation, maybe the strongest temptation that he faced in his life, was to have the crown without the cross, and you and me, if we're offered option A is suffering, option B is no suffering, which one are we taking? But if Jesus chose option B, no suffering, we are all doomed. For if he opts for the route of no suffering, he will live and we will die. And if he opts for the route of suffering, he will die and we will live. And that's what's going on there in the garden, he trusts his father and perseveres. I love the City of Light has a song that captures this sentiment and they sing, how in that garden he persisted, I may never fully know. 
and the fearful weight of true obedience, it was held by him alone. What wondrous faith to bear that cross, to bear my sin, what wondrous love. My hope was sure when there my Savior prayed, Father, not my will, but yours be done. So a little while after that, Jesus uh, gets done praying. He comes and he finds his disciples are asleep. And one of his other disciples, Judas, arrives and betrays him with a kiss. A sign of affection turned into a sign of betrayal. And Jesus is whisked away, put on trial, and within hours he would be hanging on a cross. But I told you to turn to John 17. And you might find it interesting that none of that is in here. And the reason I start that way is because when we think about Jesus' prayer on that final night, we typically think of the prayer of Father, not my will but yours be done. But John doesn't tell us that. John gives us this prayer in John 17, and then we come to chapter 18. He goes into the garden, and then verse 2. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew this place, for Jesus often met with his disciples, and so on. And so Judas then comes and, and arrests him. So we don't get a glimpse of that, but that's not because John forgot it. In fact, of all people, John would have been in the best position to remember it. He was right there in the garden that night with Jesus. He was one of, he was maybe Jesus' closest friend on the, this earth. And Jesus brought him kind of the inner circle and said, be praying here. John didn't forget this. And it was also not because John just, uh, it's not because the gospels contradict one another. They don't. But what's happening is that is the, the John has an agenda in mind when he writes this. Now, when you and I hear that, we think of it, we, we normally use that phrase in kind of a pejorative negative sense of, well, they, just, they have an agenda. But here's the reality. Every single person who speaks or writes anything has an agenda. I have an agenda this morning. My agenda is that you would see and savor Jesus Christ as more supremely beautiful than anything else in the world coming from his word. That's my agenda. And each of the gospel writers have their agenda too. They have something that they want you to see, something they want you to get, and the gospel writers might emphasize different things, but they don't contradict. And so John, one of his big emphases is portraying Jesus as the divine son of God who came to accomplish salvation for his people. That's evident right from the very beginning of the gospel. Unlike Matthew, who begins with Jesus' human lineage, and unlike Luke, who begins with Jesus' human birth, and unlike Mark, who begins with Jesus' human ministry, John begins with Jesus' divine nature. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Speaking there of the Son, he was in the beginning with God. John, from the very first verse, doesn't want you to be surprised. This man whom we are talking about, Jesus, he is the Son of God, the one who holds all authority over all things. So right after Jesus triumphantly declares, take heart, I have overcome the world, look at what he's praying. John wants us to see that in these moments, this guy is still the one who is in control over all things. He is still the one who confidently triumphs over all, even in what's about to happen. Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. He knows exactly what is about to happen. He prays, you have given me authority over all flesh. Jesus is in control over all that is about to happen, which is important to realize that he has been given control over all flesh right before human beings come to arrest and kill him. Who is really in authority? 
to give eternal life to all whom you have given me. Even in what is about to happen, not only does he know about it, not only is he in control over it, but his purposes are being fulfilled by it. You know how sometimes if you want someone to do something, uh, you actually kind of get them to think it's their idea in the first place? Uh, Jesus is okay here with the religious leaders thinking they're in control because they're accomplishing his very purpose. Who is really in control? John 18, right? If you think, well, you're kind of reading too much into this. John 18, here's what John says. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? When he's on trial before Pilate, Jesus says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it has been given you from above. Six times in John 18 and 19 does it mention how these things were happening to fulfill what was spoken about by Jesus and the scriptures. In fact, it says in chapter 18 at one point, it says this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So it's saying the things that he's told you were gonna happen are now coming to pass. Who is the one in control here really? It is Christ. He possesses all authority. And this is what all four gospel accounts point us to in the account of this night, is that there is a confidence in Christ that anchors him in these moments. Even in the midst of agony and anguish, praying, Father, uh, not my will, but yours be done. And for John, he's portraying Christ as totally in control over everything that is about to take place. Back up, chapter 16, verse 32, right? The, the chapter divides weren't there in the original text, so let's kind of get a running start into our passage here in chapter 17 and just notice the flow that John just continues to trace. John 16, 32, Jesus telling his disciples, behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Do you see that connection? Right after Jesus says, take heart, I have overcome the world, he prays a prayer of triumphant victory, really, to his father about what is about to happen, knowing that his purpose is going to be fulfilled through all of it. And so it's instructive then for us to look at what is Jesus praying about that night. We're gonna walk through his prayer here in John 17 and see what Jesus is praying about. A few weeks ago, we looked at his instruction to his disciples to pray. He says, come and ask. But now we see when Jesus prays, what does he ask for? What does he pray about? And we will see there's, there's a lot we could pull out from this passage. There's a lot here. But we will see at least three desires, three requests that Jesus brings uh, that we could imitate as we pray. We are to pray for God's glory to be exalted. We are to pray for God's purposes to be fulfilled. And we are to pray for God's people to be one. First, we are to pray for God's glory to be exalted. Pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 17. So when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, 
the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Do you see how often in those verses the theme of glory shows up? Over and over and over again, Jesus is praying for God to be glorified. What is on his mind, at the forefront of his mind, on this night before he is to be crucified, is glory. He seeks the glory of God above all else. Verse 1, glorify your son, the son may glorify you. So see, what's happening is within the, within the Godhead, there is a sense in which the, there's kind of a mutual pointing at one another. You think it kind of that Spider-Man meme where they're all kind of pointing at one another, right? Uh, that's what's happening here. The father is pointing to the son, saying, look at him. At the transfiguration, the, the father says of the son, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The father says, if you've seen my son, you've seen me. You want to know who I am? Look at my son. But the spirit too, he points at the son and says, look at him. Jesus says that when the spirit comes, he will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the more spirit-filled a person is, the more Christ-centered they will be. And the son looks to the father and says, it's for his glory. See that in the text. And he says, I'm going to send you my spirit to indwell you and be with you. And so here, Jesus is praying that the Father would glorify the Son so that the Son could better glorify the Father. So he's understanding his relationship with his Father. That the Father and the Son have shared for all of eternity in the fellowship of the Spirit with perfect love for one another. And it is this glory that drives his entire ministry. Verse four, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. See, he says, the way I've glorified God is by doing his work. The way I've brought him glory is by doing the work that he gave me to do. That's why I like to summarize the mission of Jesus as saying Jesus came to glorify God by saving those whom the Father had given to him. He glorifies God precisely by doing the work of the Father. Verse two, he kind of says a similar thing. He says, he prays that the Son may glorify the Father since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given to him. Twice in these verses then, Jesus connects glorifying God with doing God's purposes, doing doing God's work that he had given to him. See, all throughout his life, including in this prayer and including in the 24 hours that would follow, Jesus was motivated by the glory of God alone. This is his highest aim. Verse five, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So he's praying, I'm glorifying you, Father, and reveal my glory. Now, we're reminded by John uh, through this inclusion in the prayer of, of Jesus of the divine nature of this man praying right here. He is no ordinary man. He is the eternal son of God. The one who was before the world even formed was perfectly with the father. He is not saying, oh, now give me glory. He is praying, may the glory that I have always had be revealed, be shown now. And so what motivates him in these moments, the prayer that is arising from the depths of his heart is for God to be glorified. 
this model for you and me to follow too. That we should seek above all else the glory of God. What should flow throughout our prayers more than anything is the glory of God. We should desire his aim and his purposes and his name being made great more than our own. And we look at our prayers and we wonder how often we pray for things that would make our name look great versus how often we pray for things that would make God's name look great. At the forefront of our mind should be the glory of God as it was for Christ. Uh, but, but Christ also prays that his people would come to enjoy that glory. It, it could be said that verses one through five is uh, Jesus saying uh, uh, he wants his followers to know God and in verses six and following, he's saying, I have made God known to them. He wants God to be glorified precisely by the salvation of God's people. That is how God has brought glory. Verse three, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He says, knowing God is what we are all about. We talk about eternal life in all sorts of terms. We uh, think of it as the, uh, in a better place. We're gonna live forever, streets of gold and all that. But you know what the best part about eternal life is? So we're gonna be with God. Eternal life is not even so amazing because it's of how long it is. It goes on forever and ever and ever. What's the most amazing about it is the quality of life. That is, we are with God and enjoying him forever. He says, that's eternal life. You want that life. And that's what he offers. Christ says, I have made him known. So understand the logic of these verses. Jesus is motivated for the glory of God by saving God's people. And everything that's gonna happen in the ensuing hours is to accomplish that. And so in verse two, you know, Jesus affirms he's been given authority over all flesh. Why? Look at it. Uh, you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. The reason he's been given authority is to save God's people. And so in other words, Jesus has been given authority over all flesh precisely so he could use that authority to lay down his life for them. Uh, think about uh, what our world might look like if those in authority used their authority as servants, like our Lord did. I like the way one author describes it. The Father gives Jesus authority over all flesh, and so Jesus desires to lay down his life for that flesh. Jesus is in control and desires to give his life for those over whom he has authority. What Jesus wants for his people is better than what they want for themselves. And what this all means is that God's glory and your joy, your good, are not opposed. Our highest aim in life must be to bring glory to God just as that was Jesus' highest aim. But that is definitely not the same thing as saying you either get your joy or you get God's glory, as if those are two separate things. No, you get joy when you are living for God's glory rather than your own. That's precisely the pathway to joy. Surely you have experienced the burdensome, wearying efforts of trying to manage your own life Try to carry it on your own. Try to figure it out. Think it's up to me. And maybe some of you are there this morning. You are wearied and burdened by the life you're living. 
Well, Jesus offers a better way. Jesus offers the pathway to true joy, to lasting joy, the only place that it can be found. When you live for God's glory is when you experience the deepest joy. You know, Bill Stepp and I yesterday had the privilege of teaching at our North of 55 conference. And there Bill said this, and he he, he nailed it. He said, can you pursue joy without pursuing God's glory? Well, the world's doing it every day. But can you pursue God's glory without pursuing your joy? I would like to think not. See, God is glorified most when you have the most joy in him. It is true that God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. This is, this is amazing. The greater my joy, the greater I glorify God. And the greater I live for God's glory, the greater I get joy. This is an amazing thing. They're intertwined. We think, oh, God's going to try to rob us of joy when we come to him. And he says, no, no, no. The only way to experience the true fullness of joy is by living for my glory and not your own. That's what he offers us. And so Jesus prays that God would be glorified in the salvation of his people, meaning that when we rejoice in that salvation, we are bringing God glory. And when we are bringing God glory and living for him, we are getting joy. It's an amazing thing. I'm, I'm gonna steal this illustration from John Piper, but uh, that's never a bad thing, right? Think about uh, you go home from work one day and you, show, and you show up and you say to your wife, ah, guess I gotta spend the rest of the evening with you now. I guess that's what a good husband would do, I suppose. Uh, kind of looking at your watch and, gee, thank you. Uh, I feel the love. But then imagine showing up and, and you have flowers and you show up and say to her, you say, I just cannot wait to spend time with you tonight. There is nothing that makes me happier in the whole world than being with you. Do you know what your wife is not gonna say to that? Come on, man, you're just so selfish. All you're talking about is you, you, you. Your happiness is you're happy. Why are you talking about you all the time? Do you know why? Because you expressing your happiness and joy in being with her is precisely how you are revealing and showing her worth. And so it is with God. When we say, uh, there is nothing that brings me more joy than God. It is not selfish to, to be talking about my joy because we are revealing that God means more to us than anything in the world. God's glory, our joy. God is glorified through the salvation of his people and through his people coming to know him. And the more we know him, the more we get joy and the more he gets glory. It's an amazing thing. So we pray for God's glory to be exalted and we pray for God's purposes to be fulfilled. For God's purposes to be fulfilled. Because see, we don't glorify God like we ought to. For us to actually enjoy God and to bring him glory like we should, like we were created to, uh, we can't do that on our own. That's why Christ came. He came to bring glory to God by saving God's people and bringing them to himself. And so we pray for God's purposes to be fulfilled. We'll pick it up in verse six here. We'll read through verse 19. Verse six of John 17. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. Now I have given them the words that you gave to me and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. 
all mine are yours and yours are mine and I'm glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except for the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled, speaking there of Judas. But now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now, there's a lot there. We could spend a whole sermon series there, and today it's one point in a whole sermon. But I think there are several themes we can pick up on that uh, we see about how God's purpose is being fulfilled in the work of Christ and the salvation of his people. And so a few observations here about how God's purposes are being fulfilled. First is that we see the father gives his son a gift. The father's gift to the son is a particular people. In fact, we reach back to verse two, we see the same language showing up there. So I put to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Verse six, same language. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. Verse nine then makes it clear, this is not speaking about every single person in the world, but there's a differentiation here. Verse nine, I am praying for them. Who? For the people God's given me. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. It's hinted at again. Verse 10, Christ's people are the same as God's people, as the Father's people. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. See, what's happening is the Father gives his Son a gift. Elsewhere in the Bible, using that language, it's a, it's, it's a bride. He gives a bride to his Son. And it is for these people whom Christ died. His atoning work was not random. He didn't die and rise and then sit back and say, all right, now let's see who's gonna come to me. No, he did not die just to make salvation possible for everybody. He died to make salvation certain for his own. Jesus took names to the cross, his father's people. In eternity past, the father chose for himself a people and gave them as a gift to his son so that in the fullness of time, the son would take on flesh and die for them that he might bring them to God. And so marvel here at the stunning love of God for you. Before you were ever born, before the world even existed, the Father chose for himself a people. And you and I who believe in Christ, he chose you to give to his son as a bride. That his son in the fullness of time would take on flesh, live among us and die for you. Taking your name to the cross to secure your salvation. See the glory of this particular redemption for God's people. 
And this should lead us to praise God all the more for his saving undeserving sinners. Because what it means is that it wasn't, he didn't save us because we were just good enough. He didn't uh, just uh, save us because he knew, well, if I just make it possible, you'll, you'll eventually come to me. He didn't save us because we were so worth it and he just wanted to have us on his team. No, God saved us because he loves us and for no other reason. And yet in his love, he brings us to himself and gives us joy in him, lasting joy, eternal joy. Jesus prays uh, that, uh, that my joy be in them, they have fullness of joy. My joy may be fulfilled in them. He did not die just to make it possible for you to come to him. He died to bring you to him. Salvation is certain. And so just as the father gives to his son a people, so the son gives to his people another gift. So the father's gift to the son, right? So there's that language going on here. The father is giving something to the son and the son's giving something to those people. Verse six, yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So keep keeping God's word, right? Hang on to that. Now, verse eight, for I have given them the words that you gave to me. So what does he give to his people? He gives them his word. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And so with that in mind, verse 19, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So what does the son give to his people? He gives his word. He has not left us aimless. He's not left us wandering about trying to figure this thing out on our own. And the words of Christ we see here in this passage are what bring belief in Christ and what bring likeness to Christ. We just read verse eight, he says that he gave them God's word and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. So believing in Christ here in this passage, just like it is throughout the rest of the New Testament, is described as receiving his word. Read through the book of Acts sometime and notice how often the, the, the phrase they receive the word is synonymous with them coming to faith. It's the same thing. They received my word and have come to know in truth that I came from you. So the word of God is what produces faith in God. So the purpose of which Christ is saying these things is to bring his hearers to faith, to belief. In fact, John tells us that's why he says all of this. We read this last week, but at the very end of John's gospel, he says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. So there's a lot, a lot else that you did, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In other words, there's a lot of other things John could have said to us about Christ and what he has come to do, but he didn't need to because he knows that the words he's written here are sufficient to bring God's people to faith in Christ. And so the Holy Spirit, the divine author of these things, obviously knows all, all there is to say about Jesus, the Son. And yet he deems it to be that no additional words, whether it comes in a dream or new revelation or any of that, will do anything more to bring someone to faith than is already recorded here in the scriptures. Paul says faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. 
And so if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you don't believe in him, my challenge to you is today, find a good friend who you trust and just ask them, will you read a chapter, a book in the Bible with me? I would encourage you to start with John. Read a chapter of John each day with someone you trust and meet God in his word. We find life in God's word. How often do we meet him there? How often do we think, well, if God just showed up and and said something to me, then I would believe he has in his word. Do you believe? And for all of us, when we are sharing the gospel with someone this week, we are kidding ourselves if we think that uh, someone will come to faith in Christ without the means Christ has given to bring people to faith. It is his word and his spirit using his word in the hearts of his people. But in believing, we are also transformed into his image. He says he also gave us his words that we become more like him, what we call sanctification. Verse six, he says, yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So true faith produces fruit. It's born out in life. The word of God is not only to be heard and believed, it is to be obeyed. And this obedience is all in the goal of greater Christ-likeness, which is sanctification. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We are not sanctified apart from God's word any more than an athlete is prepared for a competition apart from working out. Raw, natural ability might be enough for a short while, but it will fade. And if you find yourself neglecting God's word long enough, you will look around and wonder how long you've been growing apart from Christ rather than more like him. And so may that never be said of us. But we recognize we live in a world that is easily seductive and eagerly aggressive toward us who believe. Jesus says, my people are not of this world, just like I'm not. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one, speaking of the devil or Satan. I've mentioned before the illustration of the the church as an embassy of heaven. What that means is we are in a foreign land. This world is not our home. And just like an embassy is kind of an outpost of that country, that kingdom, so too is the church. When we gather together, we are an outpost of heaven. And we're reminding one another of what our true home country is like, longing for the day where we will be there with all of God's people. And yet in the meantime, we live in in a world that is not our home. And we remind one another of what, is, what we're truly about, of the God we love and serve as we come together with his people. We'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, the third element we see at play here is not only the father gives to his son a people and the son gives to uh, his people his word and uh, we are kept then in all of this by God. We are kept in all of this by God. Verse 11, he prays, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me, I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except for the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. Speaking there of Judas again. And so verse 15, Jesus asked the father, we just read this, that he would keep them from the evil one. We are kept by God. We are in the world 
And so you say, well, what's going to keep us from kind of being drawn away, seduced by the world and carried about? Well, you know what's going to keep us from that? It's God and God alone. And so what we have in view here is a comprehensive view of the mission of God that he came to accomplish in Christ. That God gives a people to his son and the son saves those people by dying for them. He gives them his word to lead them to faith and to conform them in his image as the spirit of God works in their hearts. And he is the one who ensures that it happens because God keeps us. A better question than whether a Christian can lose their salvation is whether Christ can lose a Christian. And the answer to that is certainly not. In John 6, Jesus says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. The mission of God is that his people would be, would be brought from sinful rebellion to faith in Christ all the way to obedience and Christ-likeness as we enjoy his reign forever. That is the purpose of God. That is the mission of God. And it is all a work of God. He saves us. He sanctifies us. And he keeps us. And that's why we pray. Because we come to realize that the things we want to see, we really can't produce on our own. But we are totally dependent upon him. Our only hope for anyone coming to faith in Christ is God. And that's why we pray. Our only foundation for anyone repenting of sin and becoming more like Jesus is God. And that's why we pray. And our only confidence for persevering and not falling away in this world is God. And that's why we pray. We pray that God would continue to accomplish his purposes, accomplish his mission through the salvation of his people, through the sanctification of his people, and through the keeping of his people. And so we pray that God's glory would be exalted, and we pray that this would be exalted through God's purposes being fulfilled. And as this happens, we pray for God's people to be one. We pray for God's people to be one. Verse 20, we'll read through the end of the chapter. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. In other words, he's praying there for you and me. I do not ask for these only, right? uh, so not just my disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, including you and me today in Ashland, Ohio, and every other believer who has ever lived. Jesus is praying for us. So what's he praying for us? Here we go, verse 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. See how often in there it comes up about the unity of the Father and the Son, and you and I being caught up into that? It's amazing. 
Jesus prays for the unity of his people. On the night before he is going to the cross, what is on his mind is our unity here. The unity of the church is a big deal, and we probably don't think enough about how damaging divisiveness really is. To work against the unity of the church is to work against the very thing that Jesus prayed for on that night and the very thing that he died for. Because think about it. If it's true that there was a particular redemption where Jesus takes his people to the cross and he's looking at them that night and saying, Father, these are the people whom I am going to save, he's praying that those would be the people who are united. It's a particular people that he has in mind. And he's praying that they would be one, share the unity of the triune God. Look at this this theme that, that carries on throughout. Verse 21. Jesus prays that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Verse 22, that they may be one even as we are one. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. Verse 26, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The father has loved his son for all eternity. And Jesus says that the love the father has always had for his son is extended to you and me when we are in Christ. So the foundation of our unity is first that we are united in Christ. We are united with him. And because of that, the father treats us and loves us like he loves his own son. It's an amazing thing. And Jesus says that this will be a witness to the world. There is no evangelism technique or strategy. There is no apologetic defense that is as persuasive to the world as a unified church who loves each other well. If you are passionate about being for Ashland, you had better be passionate about the unity of the church and about loving one another well. Look what Jesus says, right? Chapter 13, all the way back there. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. By what? If you have love for one another. Or then here in verse 21, he prays that we would be one. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 23, again, he prays that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. He is saying that our unity as a church communicates something about Christ to the world. Paul thought so too. When Paul was faced with the divisions in the church in Corinth, you know what his response was? His comeback was, is Christ divided? See, for Paul, a divided church communicates a divided Christ to a divided world. And I can hardly think of anything less appealing than that. But it also works the other way, that when we are united and we love one another well, Jesus says that too will communicate something about God. It will communicate the love that God has for us in Christ. So our unity is a big deal. Jesus prayed for it and we should too. So we pray for God's glory to be exalted like Jesus did. We pray for God's purposes to be fulfilled like Jesus did. And we pray for God's people to be one like Jesus did. So these were the things on the heart of our Savior as he approached the Garden of Gethsemane that night. 
He was preparing for what was ahead. Because he knew. He knew that we don't always exalt God's glory. That we live for ourselves. The Bible describes sin like this. It's falling short of the glory of God. He also knew that we don't live according to God's ways, but rather for our ways and my purposes. The Bible describes sin as people doing what was right in their own eyes. And he also knew that we are not united like we ought to be. We are divided and fighting and quarreling all the time. And the Bible says that God hates one who sows discord among brothers. See, see the question is, why did Christ have to die at all? Why did he have to come to die? Why, did, why was the death of Christ necessary to bring God's people to himself? Well, that's why. Because we who should revere God's glory above all else do not. Because we who should seek God's will and God's ways above our own do not. And because we who should live in love and unity do not. We are children of our father, Adam, who in the Garden of Eden gave into temptation and went his own way. But praise God that Christ came as the greater Adam, the second Adam, who also faced temptation in a garden, but proved victorious and obedient. For in the Garden of Gethsemane that night, Jesus, the greater Adam, obeyed where the first Adam had failed. In Eden, Adam was in paradise until his sin. In Gethsemane, Jesus was in anguish until his resurrection. In Eden, Adam ate the fruit in rebellion of God. In Gethsemane, Jesus decided to drink the cup in obedience to God. In Eden, Adam hid from God. In Gethsemane, Jesus goes to God in prayer. In Eden, Adam trusted his own way was best. In Gethsemane, Jesus trusts the Father's way is best. In Eden, Adam's sin led to pain and sweat. In Gethsemane, Jesus felt the curse of Adam as he in pain sweat drops of blood. And in Eden, Adam's sin led to condemnation. But in Gethsemane, Jesus' obedience was the pathway to salvation for all of God's people. And so because the second Adam obeyed in that garden where the first Adam had failed, that second Adam, three days later, walked out triumphant over the grave into the sunlight of another garden and everything was changed. And all who believe in him, he brings to himself that we would enjoy God and glorify him forever. And when, when we, his people, are caught up in him, we have eternal life, which is knowing God. And we look forward to one day, whereas the book of Revelation says, we will dwell with him in another garden. It is Eden restored, and we will be in perfect peace and unity with our God and with one another as we enjoy him and delight in him forever. It is for that purpose that Jesus persisted all the way to the cross, that our deepest joy would be satisfied in God while he gets all the glory both now and forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, your love shown to us. Lord, we don't deserve it. There's nothing that we could do. It's not because we're, we're so good or so lovable. If we're really honest, we're not that much. It's because you loved us. And we praise you for that. Lord, we thank you that you have brought us to yourself. That we would know and enjoy you. This is eternal life. It's knowing you. 
Lord, you have satisfied the deepest longings of our heart in you. And so we praise you for that. And so, Lord, I pray today for the very things that were on our Savior's heart that night. I pray that you would get all the glory in our lives and in our church. May there be nothing that we do or say that is intended to, 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 to draw the spotlight to ourselves and to take the glory off of you. Lord, may it all be for your glory. Lord, I also pray that your purposes would be fulfilled. I pray for each one sitting here. I don't know where they're all at, but you do. I pray that your spirit would meet them in these moments. I pray that those here who don't know you, Lord, would you draw them to yourself, bring them to faith in Christ. Your word has been preached, and you say your word brings faith. I pray that that would happen today. And I pray that you say, uh, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Lord, I pray that you would make us more like Jesus. Lord, I pray that for us. And I pray that for us here at Grace, we would be united with one another. Lord, weed out any divisions that might come, the things that we're so tempted to fight over and quarrel over. I pray that we would be marked by a love for you and a love for one another. Lord, may this be a witness to our community that as people look in and see the way that we love one another, what's up with that? May it display your love to them. And so, Lord, we recognize and confess you are the only one who can save us. And so we praise you that you have done so in Christ. We recognize you are the only one who can sanctify us and make us more like you. And we praise you that you are doing that in Christ. And we recognize that you are the only one who can keep us amidst the, the sways of this world and the, 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 the trials and the temptations that come. You must hold us fast. And we praise you that you are the one who does that. And I pray in all of this that you would satisfy our hearts, give us deeper joy in you, and may you get all the glory and all the praise in our lives and everything that we say and do today, this week, and for the rest of eternity as we enjoy you. To your glory in the name of your precious son, Jesus, amen.